Hello and welcome to Project Where is the Line. I'm the philosopher and I'm joined by my guest, some guy. And today we're going to be talking about the Afghanistan conflict, specifically how we got up to this point. Myself and some guy aren't experts in the field, but we want to talk about some of these topics, whether they be controversial or difficult or confusing, share our thoughts, but make sure that we're not adding to the public discourse, but helping to alleviate some of that public discourse, helping to look at things from a different perspective, actually explore it, look at topics that we may disagree with and try to understand them a little bit better. Uh, and I think the Afghanistan conflict is one that's been going on for a long time now. It's pretty complicated. It's been going on since, you know, I've been before a teenager, I believe, and it's still going on now and uh, it's, it's getting to a boiling point. So we, we're going to revisit this topic in the future, but for right now, we just wanted to get to where we are now, how we got there. Uh, we would love you guys to join along with us. We're going to be sharing our own opinion on this topic as educated as we can on it. We have a few articles we're going to be looking at uh, and try to remain as unbiased as possible. That's what's important for us is being unbiased even when we have our own opinion of a topic, keeping that unbiased, but making sure that we're maintaining the information and trying to distill through the, the sea of fake news that's out there nowadays and trying to think for ourselves while also trying to rely on reliable sources as much as possible and entertain you guys and, and hopefully help you guys think about things from a different perspective. We're not trying to change anybody's mind here. We're not trying to argue one way or the other. We just want to learn, understand, and have a conversation so that we can set aside this public discourse. So if you like this kind of stuff, if you're open-minded and willing to learn about topics that you don't know about or that you disagree about, then welcome. And I hope you enjoy the show. After nearly two decades of war, more than 6,000 American lives lost, and over 100,000 Afghans killed, and more than uh, $2 trillion spent by the U.S., the outlook for the country's future was still grim, with regional experts assuming the Taliban would ultimately come to the control of Afghanistan once again. But few, ex uh, but few expected a takeover this swift. It happened very, very fast. With so little resistance from the Afghan government, the Afghan National Army, the latter of which was funded and trained with $89 billion from U.S. taxpayers. Okay, so uh, that is a good point to hit on real quick, is that we as Americans actually did fund this project that has essentially failed. So that's just something to think about from that perspective. I'm not going to say one way or the other, but I'm just stating objectively, we did, uh, as Americans, taxpayers invest into this. From there... It's how do they take over so quickly, right? So we don't know for sure 100%. So a lot of this is going to be speculation based off of intelligence that we have. <laughs> but, you know, the, the same intelligence that thought that we'd be okay if we pulled out uh, might also be pulling in this information. So I'm not sure 100% like who's saying this. Uh, let's see here. So, well, actually, well, this article states that a lot of it is going to be interviews from various like Marines and people who work in the project. So they do in this article actually state, uh, you know, from their point of view. But among the main causes, analysts say are intelligence failures, a more powerful Taliban, a more powerful Taliban, corruption, money, cultural differences, and simple willpower are the main causes, which they dig into a little bit more here, which is really interesting. Uh, they say that the Taliban's rapid takeover of Af Afghanistan, including its capital and the presidential palace, suggests 
that U.S. military intelligence failed in its assessment of the situation, according to Bill Roggio, a senior fellow at the Foundation of Defense and Democracies. Uh, as he says, this is an intelligence failure of the highest order. Uh, on Monday, adding, it's the biggest intelligence failure since the Tet Offense during the Vietnam War, a campaign of devastating surprises attacks, a surprise attacks on the U.S. and allies in 1968. So, um, interesting. So, since the 60s, um, says this person from the military. I mean, he could be exaggerating, could not. Uh, I'm going to take him at face value on that, but that's, that's still, that's not fun. Uh, anyways, we go on. So what's key to note is that the Taliban did not have a, have to fight their way into Afghanistan's provincial capital uh, capitals, but rather brokered a series of surrenders, say, uh, says Jack Walting. He's a researcher uh, from the fellow Land, Welfare, and Military Sciences at the Royal United States Institute in London. Uh, over the last few years of fighting, the group managed to gain control of some 50% of the country by seizing rural areas. Uh, we did not understand the tribal dynamics we never did. We think everybody wants what we want. It's cultural obtuseness, obliviousness to their reality. Uh, I want to take a pause there real quick because I think that's a really interesting point to acknowledge. Uh, I, I rarely see that much honesty from like someone in the military about, about uh, cultural differences, but it's a very, very huge one. And uh, I can't help but think about this book that I read. I, I, I reference it a lot. I don't think I reference it on this podcast yet, but it's called Mastery by Robert Greene. And I do not remember the tribe that was uh, talked about in this book, but essentially this guy and his family go on a mission to this tribe, this remote area that's basically untouched by civilization to try to, you know, convert them to Christianity. So they have to learn their, their culture and become one of them before they trust them enough to even consider like the topic along the way, you know, this guy basically lives the life of them rather than b being an observer. Because everyone else has always failed. Everyone else never could figure it out. Um, and they just thought, like, it was impossible. You know, their language, they knew the language, but they didn't understand the context of the language. And that was because you don't understand the context until you live the life of someone from that area, from that culture. And uh, it's funny because it, this is somewhat irrelevant, but I just think it's worth mentioning that this person, who was in I'll look up on a little bit, uh, he basically left Christianity um, and started living in this village because he appreciated and, and, and respected them so much that he actually like stopped trying to convert them to Christianity because like their culture just wouldn't work with Christianity because their language, their way of life, it's all intertwined. Like they don't have uh, certain words for numbers, uh, the way that we do, they don't, they don't have, they don't need or have words for like anything over, I think it was five or 10. So it's very, very fascinating that, you know, this is acknowledged that uh, part of it could have just been, we didn't expect this culture to just surrender, you know, or, or to do handle the situation the way they did because ours is so different. And we assume that they valued freedom so much or other things that they just would put up a fight at the very least. Right. Uh, to me, I'm wondering if how much of it is they would prefer peace over, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Like, um, not that, not to say that it's going to be super peaceful there, but at least there won't be the United States there having war. Mm -hmm. on their country and the taliban's there and been there for the past i don't know i don't know how long the whole situation's been going on but at least we've been fighting them since 2001 is that right did we, we yeah it was About right after years. 9 11. Mm -hmm. yeah so for the past 20 years they've had to deal with the u.s troops and the taliban um so maybe it's one of those things where they're just saying you know what let's 
one is better than two. Who, kn- who knows? Uh, I hate to speculate too much because, like you say, I haven't, we haven't lived the culture. Yeah, and any speculation we we do is obviously we're going to correct ourselves with new information. Um, mm-hmm. So we can only speculate based off what we know. And I I kind of agree with you that it it could have been their values, or it could have just been fear of what could happen. Um, it could have just been confusion, you know, <laughs> like not knowing what to really do. Maybe it conflicted with their religious beliefs to some extent. Like maybe a lot of people took their religion because I, I think a lot of it is you know very non-combative. Uh, but I don't know enough about the religion for sure. I don't know what what is the for sure practice religion in Afghanistan. That's something we'll we'll look up along the way as well. But yeah, so I just I thought it was something worth talking about because we have to kind of humble ourselves and not assume that everybody wants what we want and we should be okay with the fact that not everybody wants what we want um i think as we grow more mature as a planet we should uh try to come up with universal you know do's and don'ts that we can all agree on so that we don't have these kinds of issues and we're slowly working towards that but the bar keeps moving forward and backwards at the same time (laughs) you know uh when the taliban took over they started uh, and I'll, I'll probably go over this again in a little bit, but they, they changed what women could and couldn't do. And then also made the claim that they would try to be more uh, uh, progressive with women's rights while also taking their jobs and saying that their, you know, their cousins and their, their brothers and like fathers can take their jobs and stuff like that. So it's, it, you know, there's stuff like that where it's like me personally, I strongly disagree with that. And I, it sounds like many of the people in that country disagree with that. It's just, now they're being forced to regress to uh, a culture that they they used to be and don't want to be anymore. And that's, uh, you know, I'll I'll circle back to this later on, but that's, for me personally, I feel like that's justifiable enough for people to want to, you know, consider helping them if they want that help, because maybe they don't even want our help, right? And then who are we to just go in there and take that land? You know, again, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I want to continue and focus on what has happened, but it's just, it's hard to not speculate, but I do want to get back on task here. I'll pull myself back in. Uh, U.S. Marine Lieutenant Colonel Michael Zecha. I'm sorry, I'm saying your name wrong. Probably. He says, in when they began making headways in the cities, many Afghan forces gave it to them, uh, convinced that the government in Kabul would not back them up. The Taliban would infiltrate urban areas, assassinating key people like pilots, threatening the families of commanders, saying, if you, uh, capitulate you'll save your family walting said a lot of people because they lacked confidence that kabul would uh, be able to save them uh, capitulated more and more people chose this route there was very little fighting which is why it happened so fast Uh, the speed is not a reflection of the military capability it is a reflection of a collapse in a will to fight Again, I thought that was really interesting, kind of what we talked about before, where they didn't want to fight. Uh, but I, I could really see how the perception mm-hmm. that they have strong military power because of how fast this happened. Like, there might be people who, who think that, you know, I mean, we don't know right. for sure one way or another, but I can see so that perception. What I'm gathering from it is that they had, like, guerrilla warfare tactics, and they were targeting special forces in those areas, and then they would go in and negotiate with whoever's left. And say, surrender, and you'll you'll be fine. Essentially, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Like, we're not going to murder anyone else if you just calm down and let us have this area. Yeah, it, uh, that's that's what they're making it sound like for sure. 
that's what this the last bit made me think. Um, and I mean, that makes sense why it would happen quickly if if they were using those sort of tactics. Yeah, I I wonder if the people trained by because you you have to remember that these guys have been trained by the U.S. forces for twenty years or so um, yeah. with our tools, uh, you know, our weapons, I should say. Mm-hmm. I guess the Taliban's now, um, but that's. It seemed like they had the skill set, so I wonder, like, what, like, what would they, they, like, were they just not ready? Did they not expect it? Were they being lazy? Were they complacent because there hasn't been conflict there for a long time because the military has been basically Big Brother? Uh, there, there's a lot of books that are mainly like fantasy based that I have read that really echo this sentiment. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure we talked about this on a separate episode, but on a different. Uh, a different area of this, this same book, um, which was in the sort of truth series by Terry Goodkind. And uh, there's this one city that's just protected by this magical barrier. It's like a magic weapon that, that can stop anybody from like miles away. So no one in like hundreds of years has ever invaded this, this uh, city. And what's funny is like, no one's attempted in so long because they knew that, that the military got complacent. And was basically there for show. Uh, and even though they, you know, they had some sort of training, it's just like when you start to dig into it, it's just like the the mentality and the complacency just made it to where they would, you know, they basically lost once people got close enough and, and got within, you know, their their comfort zone of like, hey, you have all these weapons, but they're now useless because of how they approached you. They actually like tricked you and now they're already there. You know, so the tactic could have been like, hey, we're already here and now you got to deal with us. And like, I wasn't ready for this. I was, I was expecting like more of a warning. Like maybe we reverted back to like, hey, I'm declaring war on you and now you better get ready, which is still very formal. You know, like the old drummer boy walking up and they're going to like shoot each other like men <laughs> kind of vibe. And maybe Afghanistan wasn't ready. Again, speculation, not not confirmed. I don't believe this is like 100 percent the case. It's just me snowballing out there. Uh, but I had a couple of points I wanted to hit here um, because I think that, you know. It, I think the term is spitballing, not spitball. snowballing. Snowballing, spitballing. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate I was, I was that. Trying to, I was trying to envision why that was snowball. I mean, I guess you could call it snowballing because it just keeps building, but like. Yeah, no, definitely because you're spitballing like ideas out into the yeah. school school walls, <laughs> the, the, the whiteboard. Uh, all right. So. Right here I have that, you know, it says that Biden was wrong to order the troops to step up when Afghan forces won't. Because uh, there seems to be a lot of conflict as to how we handle it now. You know, do we, uh, I, I do I do want to say the last little bit, at least worth mentioning. Um, when I was on vacation, I was, you know, keeping up with this. And they were talking about how uh, Biden is now talking about making sure that all the American uh, Americans are out of there. So not just soldiers but also uh press and ambassadors and politicians or or whatever americans that are getting out of there so essentially you know we're at least trying to eject all you know get all the americans out of here and then there's also the uh there's a section of asylum for refugees 
and how that's going to be handled. I don't think we can cover all of that in this episode, but those are just general themes that are being talked about in this sphere, in this this conflict that's happening. Uh, we can probably touch on it and talk about where, where they are, or where we are right now, or what happened in the last week or so. Uh, but we're probably not going to be able to get super duper deep into it this episode. But I just want to get a grasp of what's happening, you know, and talk about that. But yeah, let me go ahead and look at this other article and see what that last bit was that I had. Few things that I kind of looked up, just was just curious about mm-hmm. um, as I was reading these articles and looking at numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've spent more on the war in Afghanistan than the amount of student loan outstanding student loan debt currently. Um, not to say that I, I I don't know how much of the student loan debt was paid outright. I think that's probably I'm I'm curious how much the US as a whole has spent on education. You know what I mean? Like not just the debt, but like how much was paid in full, how much was paid outright. Um and it it just makes me wonder if we really value war more than education. Because it, with these numbers, it seems pretty close. Um, so in the past 20 years, we've spent more than what we currently owe in student loans. Yeah. Um, but that's like college education, not necessarily even uh, like standard education. I, I guess, you know, most people think that college or uh, high school education is... Most people admit that that should be paid for. Like, right? We have we have public high school education. You mean like paid for by the government, like provided for us? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. You pay very little for, like, you know, people. You do. There are expenses for sending kids to school. Sports, but it's like, yeah, uh, supplies. There are certain fees for Trips. different classes and stuff. But like, for the most part, you can get government assistance with uh, education. K through yeah. 12. And it looked like Biden was even pushing two years of pre-K in his new plan that are paid for. So if, if that goes through, then you may get, you may actually have some assistance for pre-K. Hey. So, right. uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, and uh, also, this was in the speech that he made like three hours ago. Uh, he was talking about uh, in his new plan, two years of community college education. So I think that that's pretty awesome. Like the fact mm-hmm. that you could you could go learn a skill that, a one you want to do. Uh, did I say a one? B two, something that is beneficial for society, like um. Like, let's look at anybody that's concerned about people losing jobs right now. Uh, well, if you could pay for a college education, it might not be as terrible. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the economy's down, but I get two years of community college for free that I can do at home currently. Um, then people could really better their lives, you know, better their situations by 
an opportunity that that's given to them that they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Sorry, I I, I squirrel brained this and got us way off topic, but it, just wanted to say so. That. The one thing that I'll say is that I want to circle back to this if I can remember it. So if, after we're done talking about this topic, maybe we can circle back and do like a snippet of this before we move on. If we remember. Okay. We can even talk about this in the stream later. Uh, there you go. Yeah. It, just maybe like jot that. it down on whatever you need to do to remember it. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Because I like that topic. And it's 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 tame enough to to talk about on stream <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> without being super knowledgeable in it. <laughs> All right. So the next point I wanted to hit is, you know, it's as of right now, as of recording, it is August 24th. So it's, it's been a few days since the conflict. So I think it's good to just quickly get up to speed with a few snippets from another article. Uh, these are like the New York Times and CNBC. Uh, they're, they're credible depending on, you know, where, where you lie politically. But uh, for me, New York Times, when it comes to like world pieces, they, they tend to be pretty good when it comes to that. Uh, and they, they, I like that they're hard on just American government and not like they don't talk about Democrat Republican too much when it comes to this kind of stuff. They just talk about objectively, as far as I can tell, what has happened. Sometimes they do interject their own opinion. I try to ignore a lot of that. Like I'm never really going to highlight those points. I'm going to kind of skim over when they start taking jabs at people. Um, that's a little bit more what I consider petty. So I, just a caveat about myself to, to mention. Anyways, so on Tuesday, nine days after the Taliban walked back into power in Kabul, Government services were still largely unavailable and residents are struggling to lead their daily lives in the economy that propped up the first or propped up the past generation by American aid and is now suddenly in freefall. While relatively calm, while relative calm reigned over the capital, in sharp contrast to the free-for-all at, at the airport, many residents hid in their homes and ventured out only cautiously to see what life might be like under the new rulers. That's kind of terrifying to think about. That's kind of why you hear me like not chuckling per se, but just like uh, almost gasps of like, that's ridiculous, you know, to have to go through this uh, in, in 2021. You know, we in America, we are not dealing with, with this level of, of conflict. You know, uh, I think that's fair to say is that we are not dealing with anything as bad as this, as bad as this. Uh, and, um, and that's, that's only the tip of the iceberg, I feel like. So I'm not, I'm not trying to be very negative, but I'm just being objective. The situation that's happening in Afghanistan is not a great one. You know, it's one of the reasons we're talking about it. It, it America has our fingerprints all over it. Uh, I think there's some accountability on our side, but I also think that it's important to remain as objective about it because we, we can't be too practical, too... We can't come up with good solutions if we're being completely emotional. Like we have to have empathy as to what's going over there, in my opinion. Uh, but we also need to like just look at the information as unbiased as possible. That's that's the approach that I try to take as I develop my opinion and solutions and things of that nature uh, from my coaching background and just from my own nature. Anyways, we go on. Uh, the U.S. military has quickened the pace of evacuations out of Kabul, uh, moving as many as eleven thousand people out of the capital in one recent 24-hour period. Uh, now many of those who have left Afghanistan have reached the United States, Germany, Spain, Qatar, and other countries that have agreed to either serve as temporary transit spots for fleeing Afghans or permanent, res re resettlement. Or permanent resettlement locations. Whew. Got them. 
that's crazy. Um, but that's good that other countries are helping them out. So like that temporary, um, there, there's no right way to really handle this situation. In my opinion, this is a very, very messy situation to be in. Um, but that is where we are. I, I see in terms of America and the asylum here, uh, I know the, the conservatives are being a little bit more, uh, hesitant on that. And I think that's very hypocritical considering how much of an involvement we had, but I also think that they have a very pragmatic, but very unempathetic argument from their perspective as to why, um, as far as I understand it. Um, but I disagree with it either way. Uh, but I, I don't, I, I guess, let me ask you, you know, how would you handle the, you know, refuge refugee situation? You know, what, what would you think would be what we could do with, within our means as America? Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's a difficult situation, uh, difficult thing to contemplate, I believe, because one, you have to be cautious that, you know, some of the refugees that you're bringing in are not um, enemy combatants. Uh, I feel like that that could be problematic. So it's you also don't want to like lock down people that are just escaped from their country because of uh, of the events that are there going there. So I got it's really I'm not sure honestly. I don't think there's a good solution. That exists, like, yeah. I honestly have no good idea for that because how do you, how do you how do you ensure safety and prosperity? Because people deserve both, right? Not not just Americans; those people as well. Those those refugees deserve safety and prosperity. Yeah. Um, but you bring up a very good point of enemy combatants. Well, I, I like that term cause it's very neutral. Um, I think despite any, any group of people. So like just to kind of pluck out any element of, of like racism, you know, I, I do want to be practical, but I also want to be sensitive to the topic. Uh, it, it's a whole country. It's not just like a race. You know, if you just Afghanistan as a country, I'm sure they have different ethnicities within it. But, you know, anyone coming out of that country could potentially be a, you know, um, a combatant to America or to refugees. Especially and, after we've been there for the past 20 years. You know. Yeah, right. Um, so I think for me, if they're coming out of Afghanistan, um, of course, there needs to be some sort of vetting system that's that doesn't go beyond... Uh, human decency, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, any the questions that were asked, any interrogation, like there, there has to be questions asked. Uh, there has to be, uh, in my opinion, um, I don't want to say observing them, but if they're going to stay here, I think it's worth observing them to some degree, as as long as it's not. Well, um, so maybe, uh, hmm. maybe. So the way I'm going to say this. In my mind, it's more, it's less, um, in my mind, it's less like a concentration camp. 
or a camp internment camp or any, anything like that. I'm thinking right. more of like, can we not set aside some area for these people to develop their culture if they like to, you know what I mean? Like, mm. like, a, there, like a little, little Italy or little China or something like that. Chinatown, but not Af- like in the city, maybe like a plot of land or something. Yeah. Like maybe new Afghanistan opens up in like somewhere in between Canada and the U S somewhere where there's no, uh, there's not much going on there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I know that that's problematic because we're just like giving away property that we own or whatever, but like these people are going to be here until presumably forever, right? Like they're refugees. Like, is there a time limit on how long you can be a refugee from a country? I would assume not. Right. I think it depends on how long the conflict goes on for. Hmm. Uh, we, we know we need a list of questions. <laughs> Hold on a second here. I'm I'm just gonna jot this down for later. Questions for the next episode. Stuff that we uh that that promoted thought in this episode, but we don't have answers for. Yeah, I think a refugee is a refugee until they become a, either a citizen or they're able to return safely back to their country. Is like my best guess right now. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then and that's reasonable. Yeah, and I, I have a note to look that up as well. The future, but like, who decides if it's safe? You know what I mean? Like, is it like the U.S.? I guess says, they do. I don't know. To go back, you have six months to to get your stuff together here and leave, or is it a thing where it's like it's safe to go back now whenever you want? Uh, um, I guess it's five years. Five years. It depends on the country too, though. You can apply after five years of refugee status. You can apply for IR, I, ILR, uh, and after a year of ILR, you can apply for a British citizenship. <laughs> but that's okay. that's Britain. So I guess different countries might have their own like when you can apply to be a citizen. So I, I guess that's when whenever you're able to apply to be a citizen, perhaps <laughs> whenever you're eligible. Yeah. So, uh, but I guess that makes sense, though. It's like. Mm-hmm. We're not necessarily going to push you back into an area where it may never be safe for your for your uh, group of refugees. Uh, well, that has happened too, though, especially in Mexico. It, well, you were reading something from Britain, not necessarily from the U.S. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you're saying. That makes sense. Um, um, okay. Where were we? Look, I had one other point to make. What were we talking about? Afghanistan troops, people, in refugees. Oh, yeah, concentration camps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm so I'm trying to not like that's already an idea, and so that that's one reason I didn't really discuss that one too. And then also, I feel like it's almost hard to talk about taking a group of people and putting them into a location without it sounding like that. But I do think that that is not a impossible idea to make humane i think the issue is that the way we've done it historically like in world war ii uh and, you know how nazi germany has done it how we questionably have done it with mexico is the quality of the location is not humane enough right it's like substandard to american stand like the way we live and so it almost feels hypocritical to like treat them like this because our yeah. our, our bare minimum of the way we live our lives is so much higher than most other countries that it lo- it it is humane it is inhumane by our standards as Americans, you know. 
Uh, um, I think like we're we're falling on that list though. Um, what I was saying though is I think we're falling on that list of um quality of life expectations. Yeah, uh, they have at least, changed. At least by the average. Like if we uh if we don't average by the dollar made, if we average by the life lived. Uh you know what I mean? Like uh per capita versus per um person, I guess. Mm. Like yeah, we maybe we have the highest GDP. But what percentage of that is actually going to the citizens, or is actually, you know, cycled through the citizens' hands at some point? Uh, we also do. Um, I'm not saying that we don't live lavish lives by any means, mm. but not all of us do. Yes. Um, I think it's easy to look at any sort of like social media or. Uh, media in general, whether it be television or the news or um, movies, it's easy to look at what is portrayed as uh, American and to mm-hmm. easily pass over how some people are actually living day to day. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's why people who support like homeless people specifically get so mad all the time mm-hmm. because. It's like, how are we still having this conversation about how we treat other people in our country when we can't even think, like, really get down how we treat our own people in this country? And I, I admire those people that that fight that fight, um, mm-hmm. because it, every time we do talk about these kinds of issues, it, it does kind of ref- like you have to at least look at that and compare it to that to some degree. You don't you don't have to, but it's like you're kind of ignoring a large group of people if you don't uh, at least consider it, yeah, it seriously. Um, either way, I don't want it to be a conversation about that, even though that is an important topic too, that maybe we can explore because I've had changing opinions on that topic, uh, where it's like, uh, thoughts that I've, I've been more ashamed to think because of just how desensitized I am to the topic essentially. Uh, but nonetheless, in terms of, um, handling these refugees, right. Um, something I'm, I'm playing around with the idea of it and I'll try to do my best to articulate it. But, uh, I would say for people, let's, let's narrow it down to groups of people. There's like people who want to go back to their country, like they're adamant, like we want to be able to. Um, and so we don't want to be citizens here. That's, I don't have a solution to that group just yet. Right. So I'm going to take away that one. But for people who are willing to be citizens here, uh, I think, and this is again, historically, I think countries have exploited this kind of situation, but I think if you can find some way to give them a, like, jobs or, or labor that contributes to their ability to live in a country that they're, you know, whether it be America or wherever it's like, okay, building houses, building farms, building maybe some sort of like learning technical skills that might help, uh, you know, wiring the house or plumbing or like trade skills that are going to help you and your, your community. So let's take your community idea, but it's like, okay, well, you're going to learn how to manage your own community. I, now that's, that could also be politically dangerous because historically, as far as I'm aware, a lot of giving people self-sufficiency doesn't really give the government help. Uh, I think it does. Uh, if you have a productive I, government, personally, it's just, it seems like they've done a lot to the black community. So I'm sort of like skeptical of 
Uh, I got to make sure I add caveats to that as well. Yeah. But that's what I, I think we should give them the ability to be self-sufficient, right? That's, that's my thought process in like all the trade skills and they, they build their own little town with, you know, provided materials or something like that. Or maybe, um, I don't want to say debt because I don't like the idea of debt, but there, there's some, there has to be some sort of trade off to what, you know, we are getting at least something out of it, but uh, maybe eventually they go to working other companies once they build their village and it's like, okay, well you have this trade skill. How would you like to work for this company? Right. Or how would you like to start your own business so that you can do that? But, you know, maybe training, um, I don't know how you would pay for the training to get that skill, but just like, uh, so honestly, one thing that might make a huge difference that we haven't really talked about here, mm -hmm. aren't we currently, um, facing like a jobless, like a, not a job, like a, an unemployment issue because of stagnant wages. That's part of the issue. Yeah. I mean, you could say it was, you know, COVID so, hit it but uh yeah yeah so i think what happened is covid made it so that the government had to kind of subsidize people uh through the stimulus and through like unemployment benefits so it, it subsidized the citizens rather than companies um so that allowed a lot of people the opportunity to say i don't want to work this job that i've been forced to work in order to eat and to live mm-hmm um, and I don't necessarily disagree with that, but one of the things that I think might have like a weird interconnection here is if we're, uh, how many people are coming in? There's 11,000 in 24 hours. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, like what, how many people the U S is going to end up with as refugees and what percentage of those are actually going to be looking for jobs and finding jobs that aren't great jobs and are, are the ones that are like, um, service industry jobs right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know how it is in your area, but like all of the restaurants here are hiring, uh, because they don't pay anything. You know what I mean? That's a, that's the service industry, um, does not pay employees enough as a whole. Uh, you, you can't convince me that they do. Um, some, some employers do. Uh, some of the people that aren't like, I don't know if there's any like huge corporations that actually pay a living, living wage, but like, um, I, your, your job in San Diego was pretty, you, you were making decent money there, right? Like livable money. It wasn't, it wasn't minimum wage, correct? Which job? Uh, uh, go raw. Aren't you making okay there? Um, uh, I would. I mean, for for what I needed, um, in the hours that I worked, it was reasonable. Uh, I I live a very like I lived a very basic life though. <laughs> I, I don't know. I would say I'm trying to think about it. At the time, it was enough for what I needed for sure. Uh, I'm trying to think if my standards were higher, probably not. But I also lived pretty cheaply. Like my rent was pretty low. Yeah, um, but I also manage my money poorly, so that also hurt it. So it's it's like part of it was I just didn't manage my money well. Part of it was if you know if I had higher like somewhat higher standards, I probably wouldn't be able to support myself if I wanted to live alone or something like that. That's a 
pretty good. Like that, that brings up a separate topic for me, something that I maybe would like, I'd like to discuss during our gaming. Okay. Um, yeah, write that down. Uh, let me, let me, let me give you the gist of it and then I'll write it down. We can kind of, um, money, uh, management. I don't know about you, but I think we had like one class on it. We had like a, you know what I mean? Like one, one day's worth of class for money management. It was like a thing where we got like a fake thousand dollars and we had to figure out how to budget it. I have strong thoughts on this topic and we can talk about it during the stream for sure. Yeah. Did you get like training on that? No. Um, and I feel like it's one of those things where it's like check balancing class one time, something like that. Yeah, but like one one day, right? It wasn't. Yeah, like in the middle of my like school career, where it it definitely would not be relevant for another like good ten years. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I again, I have I've talked about this topic very passionately, so I'm I'm down to talk about it for sure. Oh. Yeah, so we we should probably uh, wrap up on the yeah on that one. I feel like this is probably getting pretty lengthy at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. I and mean, we talked about solutions, right? That was the main thing. Is that I'm trying to like close down potential solutions to the issue, or at least one of the issues this is like the refugees. Um, there's going to be tons of different areas that we have to cover, whether it be conflict, like w like how do we handle the war? What if the war comes to America? Uh, because uh, if Afghanistan, if the Taliban are smart enough to, to do that, what's to stop them from, you know, potentially doing another 9-11? Uh, there, there's a lot of what-ifs out there right now. Like, I'm not trying to make anybody worry, but it's just, you know, pragmatic stuff we got to think about potentially and how it may affect our, our you know, our lives or just how it may affect the, the country socially uh, and uh, how we handle this moment. This is a very historic moment, I think, um, f especially for Af Afghanistan. You know, let, let alone for the earth, but like, you know, I've been watching a lot of other world history, like Japan. I watched a documentary about Japan in like the 14, 1500s and uh, just very fascinating by their culture. Uh, you have there's tons of different rich history from other countries. That's not us that don't think the way we think or feel the way we feel or believe what we believe uh, and taking the time to put our, you know, put their shoes on for a little bit and see how they feel. Uh, or how they think and how this is going to affect the rest of their lives, I, I think is important to have that capacity to do. Um, so we'll talk about this more in another topic for sure. I'd love to know your thoughts on where you are right now. Um, you know, how do how do you feel about this this conflict? You know, how do you feel about it from the perspective of the Afghanistan's? Are you sympathetic or do you just not care because they don't? You know, for whatever reason, um, do you have ideas on how we should have handled it better? You know, now that we're here, the most important thing is like we. Pointing fingers doesn't help, right? Um, it was very easy to blame Trump because, like, he just wouldn't even take accountability. We have a president who's taking accountability to some extent, um, who's acknowledging that there were failures, which is good. Um, I'm not saying he's the best president, but he's at least willing to say, we messed up. We thought we had this right. We didn't. Here's where we are. Let's figure out the solution. And there's one thing I can't stand is people who are hindering solutions because you're focusing on pointing fingers. You're not going to help the situation. So we need to think about what we can do to get ourselves and hopefully these Afghans out of the situation so that we can all uh, live more harmoniously and not have more war and bloodshed. That'd be great, right? I think so. <laughs> um, but just no, obviously not taking, you know, bending over and, and taking violence either. That's, that's bad. So either way, love to know your thoughts. Thank you guys so much. And uh, we will see you in the next one.